Today's show, we celebrate the Magnificent Seven. Yes, seven amazing talents that transform the comics industry inside and out. Six of whom I know quite well. I was proud to stand alongside them. And in keeping with this joy of comics, proselytizing comics, sharing comics, I can think of no six guys I want to celebrate and discuss more with you than Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Mark Silvestri, Wolf Partaccio, Jim Lee, Jim Valentino, and some guy named Liefeld. The, the work that we did together at Image Comics was transformational, but it was our art. It was the work that we did that moved people and gave us that audience and gave us that ability to create Image Comics. Today on our continual celebration of this incre- incredible 30th anniversary of Image Comics, I it is my great pleasure to discuss Eric, Todd, Jim, Mark, Jim, Wills, and I'll, and I'll give some notice to the work that I did as well. Some guy named Rob. On today's all-new Observations. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, and these are my observations. These are the things that I am observing for you all. I absolutely love visiting with you guys each and every week. The comic book culture is what I grew up in. It is what I celebrate the most. It is where we find the origins of so much that we are enjoying across all media, video games, movies, streaming, toys. It all gets back to comic books. If you've even listened to this show for one or two or just a few episodes, you know how highly I think of my fellow peers of the people who make comic books. And from the beginning, look, I think storytellers in general are uh, of a certain ilk, of a certain interest. They're, 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 they're staggeringly interesting and compelling figures. And I mean, this gets, this gets back to even like somebody like a Walt Disney. Okay. Marvel was bought by Walt Disney and the Walt Disney company. And just so you know, all my checks, yes, I still get paper checks. I like getting checks with Mickey Mouse on them. They, they put Mickey Mouse instead of Spider-Man, who had always been on the Marvel checks about a couple years back. And whenever I get a check in the mail with the Mickey Mouse insignia on it, it just makes me smile. And it makes me think of Walt Disney, a master storyteller, a storyteller who had an absolute vision. Storytellers, I love them. I celebrate them. I, I can I can hang on their every word, no matter if it is a film storyteller, a illustrated storyteller, a radio storyteller. Uh, you know, we, we used to listen to different, you know, radio telecasts when I was a kid uh, before we even got a color television. So all manner of storytellers. There's there's great sports storyteller storytellers. I mean, in the history of like the Lakers, Chick Hearns, you know, he transformed the way basketball games were, were called. It was... It was the storytelling. Vin Scully of the Dodgers recently passed away. The, the, uh, imagine growing up with Vin Scully on the Dodgers and Chick Hearns on the Lakers. I mean, I had two of the very best storytellers in terms of sports uh, wordsmiths ever. So honestly, when it gets right down to it, this podcast celebrates the storytellers. I am going to celebrate seven, really six, six magnificent storytellers today. Hence the title of this episode, The Magnificent Seven. As you know, this is the 30th anniversary of Image Comics. 
the little company that could, the little company that always is the number three company right there alongside Marvel and DC. I have covered for you on this podcast and other podcasts many times before how we were able to become the number two um, comic company on two separate occasions earlier in our publishing history. And we've covered the motivations and the frustrations and everything that went into creating Image Comics. But today I want to talk specifically about the work of my fellow founders who also happen to be some of the greatest storytellers, comic book creators of all space and time. And think about when you consider what what we did with Image Comics, I, I, I've been dwelling on it a lot in the last several months as, as uh, the anniversary continues to gain, I think, momentum. I mean, we're halfway through the year. We're halfway through this 30th anniversary. And just recently this week, Jim Valentino, who gave you Shadowhawk, an image founder, uh, released a 30th anniversary celebratory Shadowhawk issue. Uh, a, a month back, I released a profit celebratory issue. Uh, Cyberforce, Mark Silvestri's original team from Image Comics and from his studio Top Cow, celebrated with a 30th anniversary issue. I am preparing to put out an issue of Brigade, remastered, number one, the first issue uh, by by 24 different artists, each interpreting a different page of the original book from 30 years ago that launched with myself and Marat Michaels and Norm Ratman on art. And and so so it's really, it's in the headlines. Wildcats, uh, Jim Lee's contribution to the launch of Image Comics is getting a facelift over at DC Comics where his library is now um, parked because DC bought it back in 1998, 1997. So, so all of this is in is is in the news lately. Profit, Brigade, Shadowhawk, Cyberforce, Wildcats. It makes me. It really washes over me the significance, the importance, and the pure joy that was that early Image Comics energy, that early Image Comics buzz, and it was buzzing. Believe me, if you were there, it was buzz a luzin. It was buzzing. It was so much fun, and I think back, and here's the thing that strikes me the most. We were eight alpha dogs. Eight alpha dogs. Did I say eight? May I go back? That was a sound test just to keep you awake. We were seven. You guys are like, who's the eighth? We were seven alpha dogs. Seven alpha dogs. The Magnificent Seven. The Image Comic Seven. We were seven alpha dogs. Each one accustomed to being kind of the focal point of their efforts. I mean... You go on most football teams, baseball teams, basketball teams. Most teams are lucky to get two big all-stars. I mean, we've all seen Magic and Kareem, Michael and Scotty, Kobe and Shaq. For the longest time, it was Steph and Clay in, in Oklahoma City. It was, you know, KD and Russell Westbrook. They had a threesome for a while. They, had, they, they I, I think when Harden was there, you could, you could see that just three alpha dogs on one sports team was too, was too much. I, I I look at the 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 big winningest uh, Lakers teams the last the last team that won the championship in that in that bubble with LeBron and Anthony and, and when people downgrade that I'm like if you downgrade the bubble why didn't your team win in the bubble why did some teams completely implode because it was actually more in my opinion a mental test 
than any other championship I've ever seen, witnessed, been a part of as a fan. Alpha Dogs on Miami. The Miami Heat, you had LeBron James, Dwayne Wade. They were they seemed like two ferocious alpha dogs. And then you had like Chris Bosch, who was maybe not quite as alpha. Maybe he was a, a, a lesser alpha or a beta altogether. But the bottom line is, we had seven. Two guys who tore up the Spider-Man office in Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson. I mean, that was the smoothest handoff. Todd is ripping up the, char- the charts on Amazing Spider-Man. He goes and graduates to his new book, The Adjective List, just Spider-Man. Everyone called it The Adjective List because it was the first one to not have Amazing, Spectacular, Web of. It was just Spider-Man. He hands the baton off to Eric Larson. Eric Larson picks it up and just runs through it. Just, just completely picks it up. Then Todd leaves the Spider-Man book that was created for him. Eric goes there and, in my opinion, continues to tear it up. You're going to get some hints here along the lines of what I'm going to reveal to you today because we are going to go through, from my perspective, as a founder, as a fellow you know, uh, uh, founder and in, in, in partner in that movement, that, that I am going to share with you the sheer joy, because I'm really on a joy of comics kick. I'm going to tell you what I believe are the best works, my favorite works, not critically acclaimed works, not your favorite works, my favorite works. We'll get into detail in each and every one. Now, these aren't, these aren't all going to be at Image Comics. I, I would be lying if I had to set some standard and make sure that it was from Image Comics. I'll try and throw in what I think is the strongest of their work at Image Comics. But I'm here to celebrate these guys' talents regardless of where the banner was because it's the talent that drew their it, it, it's their talent our collective talent that that attracted your attention that compelled you to follow us on our career path and 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 give us that game-changing moment that was Image Comics that incredible year that was 1992 that we are again celebrating right now where I see Profit Brigade uh you know Wildcats Top Cow uh Cyberforce, Shadowhawk. It's just, it's exciting. It reminds me of a time that is frankly gone. I'm not sure it can be recaptured, but let's keep examining this alpha dog thing. Okay. So most teams, you know, most, when, when, when the, uh, the Rams, my Rams were great. You know, it was Warner and Marshall Falk who kept winning MVPs. I mean, there was one period where it was Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, Kurt, Kurt Warner. I mean, it was like, I think they won three of four potential, uh, uh, you know, season MVPs, most valuable players. I mean, these guys were incredible talents, and I had a team that happened to have one of the most talented running back slash receivers and a, a super, you know, just a gunner in terms of a quarterback that could t- put it right on the mark. And they went to two Super Bowls in three years, and it could not have been more exciting as a Rams fan, but. We had some great, you know, we had some terrific receiving core and Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce, but they were quiet. They weren't as alpha. Uh, you know, a third alpha on Michael Jordan's team was introduced when they got Dennis Rodman, and it and it and it changed the dynamics a little, but it did not on by any means change their success because they had someone who was able to manage them and and, and kind of you know if especially. If you've watched that excellent Michael Jackson, <laughs> Michael Jordan, <laughs> Michael Jordan documentary, uh, you've seen how much Phil Jackson had to cajole the whole thing and kind of inter- intervene. But for those of you guys who aren't into sports, trust me, I'm touching on you know alpha dog 
mentalities. Whenever we get two equally build big stars together on the same screen, we're always like, oh, how are they going to play off of each other? Because we understand they're both big stars. We had seven. We had seven guys used to being chart toppers. I already covered the two Spider-Man guys. Then you've got four powerhouses from the X-Men. The number one and the number two best-selling artists of all time are combining their efforts under one label. Wills Portacio, who is very much in that mix, was transforming both the X-Men and X-Factor at the time. He's on board. Mark Silvestri, who had carried the X-Men for years on those broad shoulders of his, kind of reintegrating the X-Men into modern times, really queuing up and setting the table for Jim to do his thing, who was, current, who was at the time ripping it up on Wolverine, a solo title. There's four of us. Jim Valentino, who would now make seven in this uh, countdown, but certainly he wasn't the seventh on board. Jim was on board from the word get-go. The original image guys, go go look at those. Go, 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 go look in the library. Find those episodes. Listen to them. It was the, the, uh, the original three was Eric Larson, myself, and Jim Valentino. And then we convinced Todd McFarlane, and there's a dedicated podcast which tells you that Todd really only became a part of Image Comics because his aspirations to have a trading card company, the front row, and, and you got to listen to it because Todd's entire slogan was, why would you sit in the upper deck when you could sit in the front row? Okay? And he would say that to us with, with a gleam in his eye. I was reorganize, reorganizing a couple of my drawers of my artwork, and I came upon, again, his front row trading cards, um, one sheet that he printed up to convince the NHL to give him this license. It is to all of our benefit that they didn't go with him on that and delayed him being part of the sports world by several years because he wouldn't get into that sports realm until he was doing trading, you know, um, um, action figures. And he did that on the back of his success in action figures because he launched it on the back of the success of his, you know, best-selling comic book, Spawn. So, I mean, you sit there again, what about all of us doesn't just completely scream of alpha? But Jim Valentino, the last one I'm mentioning here, he had willed the Guardians of the Galaxy into relevance. Willed them. They had not had their own title uh, over a decade. 12 years, 13 years. They were a featured uh, player in a, a Marvel, I think it was even called Marvel Features or Marvel Presents. Or The Guardians of the Galaxy was depicted for years. In the 70s, they had about a year stretch, their own showcase. It was turned off, not enough interest, not enough dynamics. They then became like some of the best guest stars. They, they started hanging around the Avengers titles. They, they were in and out of everyone else's titles. But Jim was charged with bringing them all the way back, and he did in 1990 with Guardians of the Galaxy. Jim did at least 25, 30 straight issues, many of them double-sized. He had a great elevator pitch. He decided that this Guardians of the Galaxy, his vision, would utilize a greater scheme within the Marvel Universe, in the cosmos, beyond, and in the future. Because the Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, as a, as a, as a concept, were from the future. So Jim sharpened his pencil, wrote and drew, and, I mean, just blew the heck out of the Guardians of the Galaxy, made them relevant, made them a top seller. I mean, he would not be put in the corner. He would be heard, he would be seen, and his work was, um, again, 
outselling all manner of both Marvel and DC Comics. Jim was an alpha. I shared a studio with Jim. I know we were two alphas. We had to, you know, learn how to let one go ahead of the other, you know, every single day in the middle of each day, just switching on and off. It's fun being around alphas. Alphas are extremely assertive and confident. And we had seven of them. And I'm going to tell you right now why the Olympics, why the Olympics, when we do the dream team, the first dream team, why did that get us all riled up as a society? Those of you who are too young, maybe your dream team, because they, they did the 10-year anniversary the other day, the dream team, the last time I was tremendously moved was when Kobe, in his last uh, tour of duty with the dream team unit, with LeBron, with Carmelo, with Dwayne Wade, they tore it up. And those pictures were coming out just a couple weeks ago. And I was like, that is one of my favorite. Kobe was the alpha. The alphas looked to Kobe. Even LeBron, even Carmelo, even Dwayne Wade, they said, we looked to Kobe to be the decider. There was teams, there were games in that Olympics that were tight. And Kobe said, give me the ball, take over. I'll get us to where we need to be. Then we've got the comfortable, you know, separation. Now finish us off somebody else. But in, in those times where we were tight, Kobe asserted himself. He brought the best out of Carmelo Anthony. In the original Dream Team, Michael Jordan was the alpha among all alphas. And again, if you've seen that Jordan documentary, it covers, and look, there's magic documentaries, there's Larry Bird documentaries, they all cover it. How they all had to, you know, augment their games and their approach. Because you've got the greatest point guard of all time in Magic Johnson. You've got a, two of the best forwards of all time in Larry Bird and Jordan, if you want to put Jordan in the forward position or you want to put him in the guard position. Regardless, the alphas, the sheer amount of alpha power on those Olympic teams is why we turn in. It's why we watch. Oh my gosh. It's, you know, it's Larry Bird. It's Magic Johnson. It's Michael Jordan. Wow. I mean, it's Charles Barkley. That 1992 dream team was something else. It was incredible. It was absolutely stunning to watch them decimate everybody and we loved it because these were all a-list superstars top draws that's the closest thing i can come to what the image seven was like the magnificent seven and the fact that like we were able to do what we did and last as long as we did before myself and jim split off is a testament to how we kind of shifted and went back and forth in our Alpha practices, like, okay, when we're on the panel, you know, note to self. If I, this was my panel, I talked the whole time. I need to defer. Todd's going to talk. Jim's going to talk. Jim's going to talk. Wilson's is going to talk. Mark. I mean, we were absolutely in the process of extended difference. And, and it was, it, it could not have been more fun from my perspective when we launched in 1992. And as seven alphas, we upset the apple cart. That's what people tried not to happen. That's what when 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 in the last ditch effort, the publisher, the editor in chief, one of Jim Lee's longtime favorite editors, Carl Potts, they all gathered together to try and convince Jim, don't go with them, don't do it, stay the course, stay here at Marvel. We'll make you, um, you know, the, the 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 term thrown around time and time again was, you're the golden boy, you're the golden child. You don't want to hang out with them. We'll we'll make you, you know, the master of the Marvel domain. Jim finally snapped out of it. He was the last on board. He was the last to decide. And he decided to go with us. 
And at that point, the door was shut and the seven alphas were united. And honestly, there was no looking back. The work that we did over the years, I think is seminal. It's transformational. It's aspirational. I I see people still uh, coasting on the fumes of the work that the Image 7 did together. I could not have been more excited when earlier this week, as I record this, Mark Silvestri, finally the art and the announcement and the formalities of putting his Batman book out were, were, were made known. It was publicly, you know, released and, and, and people saw what I had seen years ago when Mark in 2017 showed myself, Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, Jim, uh, 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 Robert Kirkman, we were all gathered together. Todd, uh, couldn't make this particular occasion. It was up at the image offices in Portland to celebrate the 25th anniversary. Todd would see us a month later at Emerald City Comic Con where Robert Kirkman would wrangle all of the alphas except for Jim Lee who didn't show up. Uh, He would wrangle all of us and masterfully, masterfully wrangle Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Wills Portacio. Six of the Magnificent Seven on a stage for the first time in over a decade and we haven't been together since. And I I did an episode earlier this year because I'm I'm touching on a lot of stuff from the Image anniversary. Uh, You know, I I maintain that we will never kind of sign together again. I don't believe that's going to happen. I believe there's there's all manner of issues. Jim Valentino is not a spring chicken. He is the oldest among us. He does not like to travel. He does not like to go out in public. Uh, The pandemic only played into all of those concerns and I just don't see it. I don't see an, an, an... episode where that would happen again do i believe that jim and todd and jim jim lee and todd and mark sylvester could get together sure sure absolutely but uh as far as all of us it's not in the cards it's not going to happen i i was offered uh since i did that podcast i was offered twice to uh get together with them and i was an early no and and I believe I was not the only no. So it wasn't uh, a situation where I was the responsibility, where I was the responsible party. It was just everyone kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, is moved on. We have our memories. We have our uh, achievements. And that's what I'm here to really enhance and discuss today. And I'm going to start with none other than Mr. Eric Larson, Mr. Savage Dragon. Eric is the most devoted, the most uh, dedicated of all of the image partners in his uh production so, so eric is is probably near 275 issues and i know todd mcfarlane is like 320 315 like eventually eric will get to 300 and and uh i'm not sure he'll ever pass todd because todd keeps going but and, and and look i'm making this this is about eric it's not todd but you're gonna i'm anticipating some of your comments publishing 300 issues there are 300 issues of deadpool published you know i i get a royalty for all of them. I'm aware of all of them. Publishing 300 issues of anything is is not the same as writing, drawing, and producing them. Eric Larson is on track to write and draw and produce 300 issues of The Dragon. It will happen probably in the next five to six years. He got, uh, he, he, he just, he keeps on chugging. He keeps on churning out top flight stories and art does the entire job. He writes it, he draws it, he inks it. Let me tell you what a giant undertaking that is. We all still work on physical media, physical paper. That means you're ruling your own panel borders. That means you're, uh, uh, you know, doing, dropping in all of your own blacks, 
your shadows, your, your black areas on the face, your drop shadows, your shadows on the street, on a building. Um, maybe just a, a, a giant dark black area on the page has to be filled in. You're doing that by hand, dipping your quill and or your brushes in a bottle of ink and spreading that out across your page. Then if you go to a splatter effect, you're dipping that toothbrush, that brush into white paint, white ink, and you are splattering it. It, it is it is a handcrafted. Each page is handcrafted. There are a lot of tricks and tools, and I am not diminishing in any way, shape, or form. Let me say that again. I am not diminishing in any way, shape, or form the use of tablets or any of the computer programs, but it's not the same. There's a lot of skip steps there. You can still apply all manner of stylish applications. 100%. I've seen it. I love a bunch of the digital guys. This isn't about who's better, digital or paper. You can hit a button. And I've been shown by the guys who do it. And black areas are filled in in one second. Boom, 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 doom. Okay? Boom, 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 zoom. It's filled. Us nut jobs that are doing it on paper are still handcrafting it. It's more time. It's more effort, period. That is indisputable. Whether you like one medium over the other, it is indisputable. The paper method is more difficult. It is a uh, more time-intensive pursuit. Eric has drawn thousands of pages of Savage Dragon. So when he gets to 300 issues, he wrote and drew every single page. He didn't publish. He didn't have people on ARCs. I mean, part of Spawn's journey to 300 includes Eric Larson, who did a year on the book, which was spectacular. It's the last time I truly loved Spawn because I love the energy that Eric brought to it. But specifically, it's really hard for me because I'm going to tell you right now, I, this is where you're going to, I, I know the audience and you're going to freak out. A couple of you guys have talked to you, but you, you actually see it the same way I do. It's not a popular opinion. I've had Eric on the show. There's a great Eric Larson interview. I had the best time talking to him. It's about a year ago. We, we hooked up and talked. I liked Eric Larson's Spider-Man better than Todd's. Now, Todd's is my next on the list. But that Sinister Six storyline, when Eric takes over following Todd, where he pits them against Doc Ock, the Goblin, Electro, just everybody. I mean, it, it is fantastic. The, the culminating issue, I mean, Spider-Man's got like a robot appendage, like a cybernetic arm. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy batshit stuff that happens on his run on the adjectiveless Spider-Man. He started inking and using Duotone, which is a different kind of... Uh, different pattern sheets that you have to cut out and paste on the page. Trust me, I've done that as well on the New Mutants, on X-Force, on Youngblood. Eric just attacked those Spider-Man issues. The, the, the gestures, the, the poses, the page design. His Amazing is great too. The two-part Punisher, his Venom issues, all of them are great. I, 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 it's really hard for me not to put that as his, as my favorite work that he did. But lucky for us, Eric has printed a boatload of what they call Savage Dragon archive editions. They're the giant phone books. These are like the uh, essential editions that Marvel did. I don't know what DC calls theirs, but they have them too. And I honestly just let's let's lump let's lump some that Eric's first uh, Eric's first 50 issues of Savage Dragon are collected in Savage Dragon Archives Volume 1 and 2. And you're going to get a Turtles crossover when you get in there. You're going to get Hellboy. You're going to get a giant blowout with his villain, the Master. 
Um, you're going to get Dragon with a mustache. Uh, you're you're going to get just all manner of great villains and bad guys and incredible storytelling and inking techniques that were ahead of their time, that were some of, I mean, I'm looking at these double pagers right now and I am just in awe of the work that Eric put in this page. Eric is a master storyteller, page designer, knows exactly when a sequence needs a giant figure, a giant fist, a punch, um, needs a giant face, pulls back, gives you all the essentials, pulls the camera all the way back, gives you the, uh, uh, you know, great establishing shots, terrific action, you know, action choreographer, great renderer, amazing cross-hatching. These first 50 issues are the sweet spot for my Eric Larson respect. I can't believe that he, at the time, produced those 50 issues. I can't believe how great they are. I can't believe how tight they are. They're way better drawn than you remember, than I remember. Faces are great. Inking is great. Rendering is great. Poses are great. Page design is great. Storytelling is great. He tries all manner of different storytelling techniques. There's the, you know, kind of the Watchmen approach with the grid. There's a different approach that Frank Miller created for Ronin and for Dark Knight. He tests all of them out. He, Eric is a fearless storyteller. That's what I love about him. But for my favorite work by, uh, by uh, Eric Larson has got to be, it edges the Spider-Man stuff just just ever so slightly because I love the Spider-Man stuff so much. I love that stuff so much. Uh, it, I have to give it to Eric's Savage Dragon work. Issues 1 through 50 are nothing shy of spectacular comic books. They're, they move. All the, all the talks that I've given about comics that move, Eric subscribes to that traditional formula. Boom. Get you, drop you right into the story. The characters are in action. You see their powers. You see their conflicts. In the middle of the story, we slow it down. We get some character stuff. Then we explode with action and the issue and a giant cliffhanger. Splash pages, double, double page splashes. Eric is fearless. He has since moved on to working on even bigger size Bristol boards. So the amount of work that he puts into the page is it's called Twice Up. It's bigger than an 11 by 17 original page that you've seen sold at a comic convention at an art, on an artist's wall or you've seen in a, in, a, in, a, in a stack at an artist's table when he's selling original art. It's even bigger than that. It's Twice Up. It's amazing. The, I, I saw him firsthand do this in 2017 in his hotel room. He, like myself, had brought um, supplies to do throughout the kind of the dead times, the dead areas, and he just absolutely 1000% crushed it. Eric Larson is a master of the craft, is one of the alpha dogs that made the Magnificent Seven as great as they are, and the Savage Dragon 1 through 50 is must-buy comics. Staying with the Spider-Man tandem, the guys who came from Marvel that had depicted the wall crawler in their most spectacular fashion, I'm going to pivot now to Mr. Todd McFarlane. I gotta be honest, this one is really difficult as 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 much as I have told you that I love Eric's Spider-Man stuff and it edges Todd's in my mind. It's because of the action and the storytelling and the way that he depicts Spider-Man. I loved the way he physically drew Spider-Man, but it was the movement and the action and the page design and the action choreography and the villains and the subject matter that I really, really loved about Eric's run and why it is difficult for me to 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 put that to the side and then elevate the, the dragon stuff because I, I, I'm so fond of both bodies of work. But the Savage Dragon stuff absolutely edges it. Todd's Spider-Man was 100% transformational. It is still transforming 
the landscape. When you uh, see that, like, there are certain artists that struggle and then they come upon an opportunity to a Spider-Man themed book and then they immediately dive into the Todd McFarlane library and they finally find the success that they had been craving. That is the mark of Todd's success still to this day. That Spider-Man, his depiction of Spider-Man at times was dismissed. Just so you know, in the in the late 80s when he was doing it in the early 90s, there were people who thought, uh, that's just a fad, that'll be over. It won't be over. It's not. That work resonates. Todd drew Spider-Man the creepiest and the most kind of just affected visual interpretation of him. And when I mean affected, like it kind of really, it, it compelled you since Steve Ditko, who to me drew the most compelling Spider-Man of all time. Ditko's Spider-Man just, he looked and moved differently and he was the first to do it and to dangle from the webs and the gestures and the just body language that he gave Spider-Man and the visual components, how he depicted Green Goblin and Craven and Doc Ock and Electro and Mysterio. Oh my gosh. I was never a big fan. I can respect the Ramita interpretation, but it's very, to me, compared to Todd and compared to Steve Ditko, it's vanilla. That's a vanilla version of it. It's the Saturday morning cartoon version of Spider-Man. And there's a place for that. There's definitely a place for that. But I liked my Spider-Man creepy and darker. And Todd, as he was on Spider-Man, got him darker and darker and darker and pushed it further and further and further. The adjectiveless Spider-Man, especially that first Craven storyline, I really love it. His depiction of Craven, the lizard, uh, I think her name's Calypso. I loved every aspect of it. Todd pushed it as far as he could design-wise at the time. Uh, he picked up on some visual cues. He even would tell you that he was looking to kind of mimic what Walt Simonson was doing on Thor during his Ragnarok phase with Surtur, the giant uh, red Asgardian demon, as he forged the sword. And, you know, he would always show these sound effects and how he and Walt Simonson and John Workman worked together to create this visual representation. Todd did the same thing with the drums and the beating of the, of the, the drums in the voodoo kind of uh, uh, spells and and magic that I think her name is Calypso was putting on Spider-Man in this story. But I'm going to tell you, it's the Wendigo Wolverine Spider-Man story. It's Peter Parker sitting at a booth in you know the Great White North, talking about talking to other residents of this small town about the spooky kind of Sasquatch character, which we know as the Wendigo, and him holding a giant donut with jelly on it and Todd zooming in on the donut and the jelly. Todd loved to zoom in and give details and he'd make that, you would just feel how crusty, crispy, flaky that donut was and how gooey the jelly coming out of it was. Todd loved to really enhance certain uh, certain details, whether it was webbing whether it was jelly on a donut, whether it was blood, whether it was details on on bricks and 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 shrapnel and 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 debris, he just would go to town. That's why I've told you in the L boys in the elevator, he's like, oh, "You're trying to measure the eyes and draw the hair and and and, and straighten the nose and the mouth and the stubble." I, 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 I've already drawn the, the Spider Man, the big the big eyes, the big oval. I'm done. I'm drawing the figure. Now I'm drawing every brick on the buildings and all the detail. And I'm detailed and I'm tricking it out and, 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 and putting all the extra added stuff. 
Todd loved the extra added stuff. He loved the extra added stuff. And I really just hold that Spider-Man stuff in the highest possible regard. When when we combined and he did his last issue of Spider-Man and it, and it guest starred X-Force and it had Juggernaut, it was great seeing his interpretation. I mean, his interpretation of Gideon was cool. His interpretation of Cable was very distinct. His interpretation of Shatterstar, his interpretation of Feral, his interpretation of Warpath, Juggernaut. But there was Spidey. All the art in that issue sold recently at Heritage Auction, and it was so great to click on all the originals and see the white, uh, the, the, just, just the black and white line art. I mean, it was just Todd with the webbing and the debris, and, and, he, and there's a great big double pager uh, that, that he depicts with the team facing off against Juggernaut, and it, it is just chock full of great detail. But then he did Spawn, and he shifted gears briefly. It was the beginning of kind of the long gear shift. He still really was, he was able to, with great, um, I think, ease, do fun Marvel action, posy, superhero, you know, cross, cross, uh, cross appeal comics. Like, like what I mean, cross appeal, like, like you could hand those Spider-Man issues to kids and teenagers and adults and they'd go, ah, it's pretty cool. Spawn was his move towards... Uh, where I, I didn't really expect him to go, but he went there anywhere. It, it was his move towards poetry. It's like as he tried to kind of put a little bit of the Sandman audience. Sandman is poetry, and and it's a different um, it's a different gear, it's a different approach. And obviously, along those lines, he grabbed Neil Gaiman himself. And my absolute favorite issue of Spawn is Spawn Nine. It is my favorite thing Todd has done. Because on page two, we are introduced to medieval spawn. And it's spawn on a horse. It's a different vision of spawn than the spawn that we've seen prior. And most importantly, it introduces Angela. Which is this vision of the angels in the spawn world. And they hunt spawns. They wear spawn insignias on their weapons, on their belts. They, you know, like the spawn uh, logos that, that they have on, their, on, on all the different spawns uh, costumes. It's part of their costuming. This was a seminal issue for me in that, I mean, I'm looking at it right now and, and all of the ways that he depicted Angela and, and introduced her, uh, I just, I just couldn't get enough. I, I loved her visual component. I loved the way she looked. I liked the, the, uh, the armaments that she surrounded herself with. I love, there's a black, uh, 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 uh there's a weapon that she show, throws at Spawn that flattens him, makes him like almost paper thin, wisping in the wind. But that's just a decoy. Then he rises up from a pool of blood and then sinks her into it. I'm looking at it. I'm holding this in my hand. My aunt, my 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 Spawn number nine. Todd just crushed it. He rose to the occasion. He said, "All right, if there's going to be uh, this new kind of reimagining, but when I, you know, Spawn nine, he had kept under his." He had really kept under under the hood. He had kept it under wraps. And so when he introduced Medieval Spawn, like, wow. Now, it's weird to me, and it's uncomfortable that Angela has left his possession and is now a don't, in the domain of Marvel, but I can relate. I, I don't have possession of Youngblood at this time, and, and it's in the possession of someone else. And do I have hopes that some days I'll be able to, you know, ascertain Youngblood again? I will. I bring it up now because I'm going to come back to that in a little while. But my favorite... Spawn job is is 
Spawn number nine. I, I loved Angela. I loved Angela from the absolute minute that she was introduced on the page. I thought that Neil met the moment really admirably. He 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 knew what Todd wanted, what Todd needed. He gave it to him. He gave him those, however they jammed. I'm not privy to to how they com- created this work at all. I, I, I don't know how they did that, but I do know that that um, in the book, you know, Neil Gaiman's credit is uh, in, in the ins- inside front cover, it says, Story Neil Gaiman, Art Todd McFarlane. I'm assuming that they jammed together, talked on the phone, Neil went back, came up with this concept. And again, the angels, the angels of the Spawn universe, not traditional, not the way you would think. And, and the way they were depicted, Todd has a reversed, uh, has a white silhouette, a white silhouette against a black background here. And it's, it's fantastic. The spawn on the horse. Uh, I mean, there's some cheats here they're, they're in, in panel two on page three, the horse is not finished. He does not finish drawing the horse. It, the horse is squarely standing on two legs. It's a full crop of a shot. Spawn is lifting up. Uh, Angela, her arm is not finished. It dis- it disappears into nothing, and the horse, the hind section of the horse, is not finished. It's like it's like it's it's just not finished. But the page opposite it, with medieval spawn on the giant horse, it's a three quarter splash, and it complements the other shot really well, where the horse isn't finished. But then that silhouette and uh, the depiction of medieval spawn. These full giant figures. I mean, again, there's a three-quarter splash from Medieval Spawn. Uh, Spawn. There's a giant full-page splash of Angela, um, you know, b- battling the Medieval Spawn. And she bests him. And that says 800 years later. And then we're in the alleyway, and we've got Spawn. And Todd really had, had finally found, again, his poetry, his mood. This wasn't Spider-Man. No one was swinging from webs. Uh, it was a different dynamic, 100%. My favorite... Todd McFarlane works are at Spawn number nine with Angela, and then his Spider-Man work would come really right beyond that. And that is a testament because I think that the coloring that he was getting on, getting on Spawn was some of the best coloring in the history of the combo business. I'm not saying just of that time. I'm saying like these issues as I flip through this, I have the first 12 issues right in here in front of me. This coloring, his work, his union that he had established working alongside uh, Steve Olaf and his Oli Optics produced some of the most beautiful color. The music, I mean, uh, th- this shot of Spawn on the steeple, I believe from from Spawn issue two, is is fantastic. Uh, it, it, it's it's uh, yeah, it's issue two. I mean, the coloring work that Olaf was doing, I, I can only imagine that had co- had had Steve Olaf done some of the Spider-Man stuff because I thought Todd got great coloring on that work. I believe it was done by Greg Gregory Wright. It's beautiful, but the computer um, gradients that Steve had introduced as a result of his Cod Barrett system that he was running on his computers up at Ole Optics was just, uh, it, it was it was state-of-the-art, and it still, I think, has, has its place in the overall grand screen. But Spawn 9, I just thought, again, Todd working alongside Neil Gaiman, uh, the, the issue that Todd was supposed to do with Frank Miller, I... I, I felt kind of underperformed. It was not as I had hoped it to be, but then Neil Gaiman, Todd McFarlane working together is is spectacular. Again, there's going to come a time 10 years from now, maybe it is right now, that people don't know that Angela was a Spawn character. They're going to associate with her Gu- Guardians of the Galaxy, a Marvel character. There's going to be an entire generation. Again, I, I kind of suspect there is right now 
that don't don't know that Angela was a creation in the pages of Spawn, first depicted by Todd McFarlane through his union with Neil Gaiman. It's weird for me that that will be lost, but it as of this moment is is no longer you know Angela is with Marvel Comics, but her first appearance is my favorite Todd McFarlane work. Full stop. Period. Moving on, Jim Valentino, my former studio mate. He had rocked the world, shocked the world, making the Guardians of the Galaxy relevant again. But as I hold my my Shadowhawk trade paperback in front of me, I wish that I could draw over the layouts of his first three, four issues. Not because they need to be enhanced or drawn better. It's because they look so amazing. Jim is a storyteller. He is a writer. He is an artist. He is a page designer. I mean, from the prelude that originally appeared in the back of Youngblood to his... Uh, or the, the the absolute beginnings of issue one, uh, Jim was strutting. He was absolutely 100% just giving the most dynamic page layouts, storytelling, uh, action, choreography. Jim was proving that he belonged, and then some. There there is there is there is Kirby in this work. There is McFarlane in this work. There is Frank Miller in this work. Gil Kane in this work. Jim Jim Shadowhawk. To me, Edges, Guardians, because it's more focused. Guardians, as much as I enjoyed it, as much as I loved it, and as as well as I think it's executed, and, and as much as you should, because when Guardians 3 comes out again, they'll push, Marvel will push all the Guardians stuff again, regardless of what era. They will push it all. You will be encouraged to, and you should go get Jim Valentino's Guardians of the Galaxy run. It is my number two after Shadowhawk, but flipping through Shadowhawk, the original Trade Paperback, Trade Paperback, Out of the Shadows, is just an absolute blast. Episode three, issue three of the Shadowhawk uh, mini, the original miniseries, uh, finds issue four. Excuse me, issue four finds Shadowhawk and Dragon facing off again. The layouts, the composition, the page design, the gestures, the the drawing. It is all just ridiculously fun. He's got a great uh, inker that he's working with in Chance Wolf. I've had Chance ink my stuff of recent. I should have had. I should have worked with Chance more often. He laid down some really pretty, juicy, amazing lines. Uh, this is really. There are just all manner of great storytelling bits, action, adventure. Shadowhawk being a a, a solo focused character for Jim, really is where I feel he found his strides. That storytelling, that action, that adventure, that character work, the mystery. Who is Shadowhawk? It carried everybody. I was I was talking with another huge. Huge talent in the business the other day. And they said that they had not really recognized Jim Valentino when we were first announced as Image. He didn't wasn't familiar with his work, so he went and got the Guardians of the Galaxy, and it soared. He was like, wow, this guy's really good. So he followed him into Shadowhawk, had a, had a fan for life, thought Shadowhawk was one of the standouts in the first year, and I could not agree more. Jim Valentino, Shadowhawk, Out of the Shadows, the original Jim Valentino uh, launch of Shadowhawk is fantastic work. I love it. I, having just revisited it, I, I want to go draw more Shadowhawk. It's exciting. It really is um, a thrill to revisit this because, again, Jim and I were no longer sharing a studio, but we would get together once a week, and he would share this stuff with me. And uh, I think it's page 19 here. Page 19 of Shadowhawk number one has Shadowhawk crashing through a, gla- uh, a window with all the shards of glass broken around him. At the end, he's, you know, hunched on a uh, uh, two pages later, he's hunched down below uh, on a on a uh, you know perch of a building, and then the last two pages, he is launching across the city. This incredible downshot 
I mean, Jim just rocked it. My favorite Jim Valentino work is without a doubt, uh, just without a doubt, the absolute very best work of Jim Valentino's career. That's my favorite work by Jim. Again, you can't lose Shadowhawk Guardians of the Galaxy. You're going to get exciting, compelling, action-driven, character-driven, entertaining comic books, just like you are with Eric and Spider-Man and Dragon and Todd and Spider-Man and Spawn. Now we're to the X-Boys, my fellow peer group. I'm going to get right to it. Wolves Portacio, Wetworks. It's the best work he's ever done. The original four or five issues of Wetworks, most of which is inked by Scott Williams, is some of the most phenomenal figure work, page uh, page design. I, I say this, all, all of these guys have different page design aspects, but I'm going to tell you, Wilson's approach to page design, I picked up on, Dale Keown picked up on, and Mark Silvestri picked up on. It was like, whoa, we were taught to move your eye from the top of the page to the bottom of the page, inverted Z, storytelling, incredibly, incredibly important. It's something that I was, uh, I discussed ad nauseum with George Perez, even more so with Mike Zek, when I got to meet that master storyteller of Punisher of Secret Wars, a master of, Chung, of, 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 of Kung Fu, of, uh, of Captain America, Mike Zek, very generous in showing me how to do the Z storyline and move your eye, you know, from left to right and back and forth all through the page. The placement of the figure, the faces, the establishing shots, it's all part of it. Wills came in and it's like, oh, no, 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 I can actually move the panels as well. I can move your eye, but on top of that, I'm going to move and stack what I call the stacked panel approach stack panels shift them move them around no one did them better than i'd seen wills portacio do them on top of that the most magnificent figures and rendering there is a technique we call it the fade i've talked about it on other uh episodes the fade where it would be a series of lines that go dark to light uh they're 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 generally horizontal lines perpendicular and then they separate or they go Light to dark, both ways. The fade is fantastic. The guy that I first saw implement it was, was Wills Portacio. Uh, the way that he cast his blacks, dropped his shadows, the beautiful faces, beautiful, tight, just you could feel the muscles and the faces, the strong chins, the necks, the delts, the quads, the some of the best anatomy you're ever going to find in a comic. And it moved and, it, and, it, and, it, and the figures would twist and turn naturally. Uh, when we, when we finally got Wills's wet works, it was a giant flex. Now, mind you, I love Wills's X Factor. I love Wills's X Men. I love Wills's Punisher. But that wet work stuff floored me. It was like this is a guy who's been dying to tell us the story, show us this designs. I mean, they're all bathed in gold. When when the wet works action figures came out from McFarlane Company and they were actually brought to 3D life and they were gold plated, it was like, what am I looking at? This is amazing. But the rendering style, the specific rendering style, the physical anatomy, the beautiful, and I'm telling you, the way he'd crop shots, the way he'd crop faces, but that stacked panel system of how he would cascade the panels down and across. So they were like floating across the page. So what's in the panels is absolutely positioned exactly as well as it would be if they weren't separated, but he pulled them apart and and created this stacked cascade, you know, application of panels. One of the best page designers. Wills can paint. Wills can draw. I tapped Wills. Insisted that he do Major X for me when I brought my Major X series to life. 
We got him for only one issue. It is one of, if not the very best depiction issue of Major X period, full stop. Wills penciled and inked it himself. It was an absolute pleasure and joy. We did some signings to celebrate it. Uh, I love Wills Portacio. He is such a sweet man. He's such a talented man. He has um, just influenced so many other artists, including Jim Lee, including uh, Scott Williams, and many, many more, myself included. Wet Works, find it, absorb yourself into it. It is 100% uh, precision Wills Portacio. It is exactly as he wanted this work to be presented to you because of all of us, he was the best top-to-bottom artist in terms of that he understood color. Wills could have colored it himself. He understood color, color theory, mood, shadow, rendering, storytelling, magnificent. Wills's what works is head and tails above everything else I've I've ever seen him do, and I've never seen him do anything but an absolute great job. But Wetworks is is one in a million. Pivoting to my comrade, Mark Silvestri, I have often told you that he is the single most accomplished illustrator. Uh, you know, if it's a guy in a suit and a girl in roller skates going down the beach, no one's going to draw it better than Mark, much less a Batman jumping off a building or Wolverine brandishing his claws. Knockout female, gorgeous, strong women, knockout male, uh, attractive, compelling males, monsters, creatures, goblins. When he first got to Image Comics, he said, look, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I need to make bigger visuals. I need to get louder with my work. And he showed me uh, Cyberforce number one when we were signing at the Image Tent in 1992, summer of 1992. And he said, hey, check this out. I'm figuring it out. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Mark Silvestri at Marvel on steroids, double page splashes, giant figures, brilliant, you know, cropped shots. Just a, Mark had gone to the school of what his peer group was doing, what Jim was doing, what I was doing, was what, what Todd was doing. Because he said, look, I, he goes, he tapped on a couple pages. I see what you're doing. I, I'm, I'm picking it up right here. And I was like, oh my gosh, the greatest artist is now learning all the page design tricks. Wow! My mind was completely blown. Mark just stuck the landing. It starts with Cyberforce. His X-Men is fantastic. He sets the table for everything that Jim does. Gorgeous. Um, Storm. If you look at Mark Silvestri's Storm, Jim was giving you an interpretation of Mark Silvestri's Storm more than any other depiction of Storm. Not Paul Smith's Storm. Not Barry Windsor Smith's Storm. Not John Byrne's Storm. It was Mark's Storm. Mark's women were what Jim was influenced the most when it came to the other characters. But again, I'm just I'm using just Mark's impact just, just so you know because it didn't get, it was like ahead of its time. It didn't get the same bandwidth. It didn't get the, the same, you know, acclaim. Even though it was a top-selling book, X-Men was number one under Mark. He brought it back from the doldrum of, of the John Romita Jr. year, which was really three years of, of, of just, just a guy who was on the wrong assignment. John Romita Jr., street-level heroes, Daredevil, Spider-Man, Batman, that's what he does, the best Punisher. But doing the epic following Byrne and Cockrum and Art Adams and Paul Smith and Barry Windsor Smith, it was just, you know, I read to you the one thing I can agree with Bruce Conklin in 1985 in his in his interview referencing the retailer that I read from his 1985 interview in Comics Interview Magazine a few episodes back. He said, you know, I, I mean, John Romita Jr. on X-Men is not a good fit. Look, that's how we all felt. We all felt it. We were counting the, down the days as 15 and 16-year-olds where, like, an exciting artist would come back on the X-Men. And when Mark got there, 
sales exploded again, that the, the, the arrow could go higher than it did before. Mark brought this brilliant draftsmanship, figure work, and style to spare. His women were beautiful. Their gestures, casual but amazing. His men were gritty and tough and handsome. Alex Summers, Scott Summers, then there's Wolverine, then the villains, the brood, the blob, the, I mean, the, 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 the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Sabretooth. Mark was just tearing it up on the X-Men, but when he got to Image, he threw it into a different gear, and he was exploring that gear. He was exploring that gear for many, many years, and then the next level competition, I think Mark said, I shouldn't be doing a superhero book anymore. I'm trying to run a race that I'm not in love with in regards to Cyberforce. And he saw that Todd had switched to poetry and was now doing a book that was more nuanced and mythical and had a few different gears. And he started to scratch that itch with Witchblade, a little more supernatural, a little more supernatural flavor. And then he figured, hey, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do a solo character too. I'm going to do a solo character. It was called The Darkness. It was written by Garth Ennis, who wrote The Boys, illustrated in career-defining work. Those first five, six issues of The Darkness are the most beautiful Mark Silvestri. He then implements, you can see the Wills Portacio cascading panels, the way the panels are separated, the way that they fall, that they also move through the page. He hadn't been doing that. He had been working on a more traditional trajectory of page design. He had understood the big, the big shots, the big heads, the big, the big figures. He was starting to implement that and give you more of the punch, get louder on the pages. I've talked in past, uh, you know, podcast, but then suddenly he was more nuanced and he had that Wills Portacio approach. He also was impressed by how Wills would kind of drop the panels on the page, like, like reassorting, you know, assorting a different set of cards. And your eye flowed even more easily through Mark's work than ever before. And Mark is a A++++ storyteller. Darkness has his most beautiful illustrations. He brought in a brand new, enhanced, even more uh, intensified rendering, cross-hatching. His faces, I, I believe Jackie Estrada is the name of the darkness, uh, th- th- just ridiculously handsome people along with these very caricatured kind of mob and supernatural people and the gargoyles and then there's the angelus which were i gotta be honest a little nod to angela and what todd was doing in his supernatural space but nonetheless they looked amazing the darkness if you can grab it i mean a lot of the times jackie estrada is in a you know custom italian suit with his beautiful long hair, but then he will become an armor up and become darkness. I loved the guys in the suits and that stuff and Jackie in a limo and the mob aspect because it was supernatural. I think like the, the power, this demonic power is given to this mob hitman. It is fantastic. It is epic. It is beautiful. The coloring, Brian Haberlin, they were taking the coloring to the next level. It was going beyond Ole Optics for the first time. Mark and his Top Cow studio was pushing color in a, in a direction that no one had pushed color before. Brian Haberlin, in, 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 in conjunction with Mark Silvestri, was producing some of the most compelling, exciting visuals that were available in comics then and now. And it's amazing. Mark Silvestri, The Darkness. Everything Mark Silvestri is a treat. It's candy. This Batman is likely going to supplant The Darkness. But for right now, that's not coming out until November. In the here and now, in August of 2022, as I tell you, the best, my favorite work by all the image guys, 
Marks Silvestri's darkness punches that ticket. And if you encounter it and you absorb yourself into it, it will be one of your favorite works as well. I have no doubt it is knock down, drag out, gorgeous, gorgeous comic books and illustrations. Amazing. Wow. I just, I am really enjoying giving the blow to my fellow image founders. The guys, we broke the rock. We, you know, kicked down the door. We established image as this haven and all of you came along with us. My my final founder is a no-brainer to me. His best-selling work is in fact a reflection of the best work that he's ever done in the history of his career. Jim Lee's Uncanny X-Men right up to about the first, I'd say five or six issues of the X-Men that launched in 1991 that sold 8 million copies from his first Uncanny uh, issue on through, Jim is putting it all together. He is, his Punisher War Journal would be his, my second favorite work. On that book, I saw him applying the already present Art Adams influence with Kevin Nolan. A lot of Kevin Nolan is coming out in Jim on the Punisher War Journal, and he's penciling and inking a lot of the early issues himself. He's got layouts by Carl Potts, who is kind of giving Jim instruction in, in, in regards to storytelling and and action, choreography, and page design, but Jim breaks away, does his last few Punisher War journals with Klaus Janssen, with Scott Williams. It sets the stage for what's coming with the X-Men. In the X-Men, like John Byrne before him, Jim is most potent, most powerful when he is able to mix together ingredients of all of the his favorite things. So Barry Windsor Smith is present. John Byrne is present. Art Adams is present. It's this swirl. It's the same reason I love early Art Adams. Art Adams is putting it together. I've said it multiple times. I'll say it again. Early Art Adams has Michael Golden, has Michael Kaluta, a name you're not very familiar with, but K-A-L-U-T-A. It has some Barry Smith, and it has a ton of Walt Simonson. Four styles that you would not think to mix together, but Art cherry-picked each aspect of them and combined them. And it's fantastic. It's it's 1985 to 1986 Art Adams. So the long shot, the the annuals, and then the classic X-Men covers, like the first year's worth of those, are the maybe the best commercial style ever. There's there's glimpses, there's pieces of that in Jim's work. But Jim takes his very strong figure work and his ever-increasing page design and storytelling. And I think the cherry on top in the in the X-Men work is the Extinction Agenda. I told you I bowed out of the Extinction Agenda because on the other end of the Extinction Agenda, the New Mutants would be written and drawn by me. So I did layouts on the first issue and a half and then I had to pivot off. I didn't do the last chapter because I had to get started penciling and inking New Mutants 98. So I went soft on 95. I did breakdowns. I did breakdowns on 95, breakdowns on most of 96, and then I was absent all of 97. And look, Having been there for the Extinction Agenda to come together, I knew that it was a showpiece. It was a showcase for Jim. The X-Men was the flagship title. It had the best sales uh, up until that point. And it was it was a, a place where all of the fun stuff would happen in Jim's book. All of the X for all of the New Mutants, X-Factor, X-Men characters together on one kind of stage uh, in this puritanical society, uh, uh, be, being, you know, being brought together as now slaves in bondage. That double pager, it, it kind of echoes the double pager of 137 slightly that John Byrne and Terry Austin did where they're all gathered in front of a of a, of a crowd except theirs is on an alien 
uh, they're on a platform on an alien, you know, Warcraft. This having all the characters, the X Factor, the New Mutants, although they were now resembling X-Force because Cable's in it. That's why I hesitate and I keep wanting to call it X-Force because Cable's front and center with Wolverine, with Cyclops. They're all there. Um, And and, and that that double pager, the the battle uh, where Wolverine and Psylocke tear through all the soldiers in Genosha and then the slave double pager with them all bonded in front of all the Genosians and they've got their puritanical like George Washington wigs on and... uh, and then the battle between Archangel and Wolverine in, in, in what amounts to a gladiator pit is some of the most exciting, ribboning, just sharp, brilliant work of Jim Lee's career. And I'm going to tell you, as I said, Jim Valentino told me in the late 80s, he's like, have you ever thought that what you love about the John Byrne-Terry Austin combination is more Terry Austin than you think over the years? especially as a gentleman continues to put pencils up on Twitter and social media of what Jim was doing at the time and then compare and contrast to what Scott Williams brought to the table. It is incredible. You get two great artists. Scott Williams absolutely has been enhancing Jim Lee his entire career. I would have loved to have had him enhancing me. I know Todd would have loved, would have loved to have had Scott enhancing him. At one point in time, Scott enhanced Mark. He enhanced Wills. Scott is the premier inker of his generation. He is the Terry Austin of his age. On top of Jim, they were absolute magic together. The Uncanny X-Men is my absolute favorite work. I do not favor any of Jim's image work. Uh, I, I, I shudder to tell you, I, I do believe that it, because Paul Smith and John Byrne and Michael Golden and Barry Windsor Smith and Frank Miller and Art Adams had not depicted Wildcats, Jim was on his own. When Jim doesn't have material to draw on, he is not as powerful and as compelling. And again, when he becomes powerful and compelling again is when he's on Dark Knight when he's on Batman during Hush and he's able to pull from Neil Adams and he's able to pull from Frank Miller and he's able to pull from, yes, John Byrne and and Bernie Wrightson and Jim Starlin and Mike Zeck and all of the greats, Jim Apero, who had depicted Batman. He is at his strongest when he is siphoning off other influences and shaping them as he sees them commercially. And that is my absolute favorite work by Jim is the X-Men. And uh, my number two, Truth be told, would be his Fantastic Four work, which was wildly, wildly uncelebrated, but operates on all the same gears that I just told you. But when Jim did the X-Men, it was like a new energy, and there was competition between all of us, the peers. We were all, the alphas were aware of each other, and we were competing as hard as you could possibly compete, trying to outdo each other. Jim just put it all together. Uncanny. The uncanny X-Men stuff to me is the sharpest. It's the best. The X-Men stuff is second seed um, right underneath it. But the entirety of the X-Men is exactly where it belongs at the top of the heap in regards to the best work of Jim Lee's career. Full stop. One last application in regards to what Jim was doing on X-Men. When I when I say different, different influences, I mean like Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X was coming out and it hit everybody like a ton of bricks and Barry Windsor Smith established a brand new style of rendering. That style was immediately adopted by Jim who was living in New York at the time as those pages were coming into the New York offices. Jim was in New York for an entire year so Jim was able to see what Barry Windsor Smith was doing, apply it immediately to his own work but you have to have somebody as adept and talented as Scott Williams to ink over that and create that same flow. The inking, again, as I said an hour ago about inking on the page, the Bristol board, the the, the crow quill, the ink, the brush... 
you got a partner in, in Scott Williams who's like, oh, I see what you're doing. I can acclimate this. I can now study what Barry Windsor Smith is doing, which is this very complicated crosshatch rendering, and I can apply it exactly as you want it. Again, that, that, that's what I'm talking about influence, and we've all done it. I did the fade. I grabbed the fade from Wilts Protasio faster than you can say, hey, this is Wilts Protasio, and I do the fade, okay? Um, we all were picking up on different tricks of each other and implementing them as fast as we could. Some we were taking straight from manga, all the speed lines in Ak- in Akira and, and, and the different manga that we were picking up. Todd was quick to implement that. Um, double fat black borders, double thick black, black fat black borders was something that Todd had started doing that he got from manga that I picked up on immediately. I implemented it. Uh, we, we, and, and, and their tricks from Frank Miller and John Byrne, stuff that I've all, you know, implemented and, 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 and talked to you guys about stuff, hatching, gestures, layout, sequences, Frank Miller, the stuff that he got from Gil Kane. We would all, we're all jamming. It's no different than music. It's no different than riffing. I mean, again, showing light and magic. I'm so glad that they're showing mo- more of it because in the original George Lucas documentary about Star Wars Empire of Dreams, and it really stuck with me over the years, George shows how he was implementing World War II footage of how he wanted the TIE fighters and the X-Wing wings to be depicted uh, and the dogfights from World War II, you know, era action films. He would show those to his ILM guys and then they would literally, like, like in the Empire of Dreams, you see the black and white, you know, the jets falling down into, you know, as they're about to go into their pursuit, as they kind of fall from the sky and get into position. You see the same, you, you, they, they literally show you that footage and they lay the X-Wings right on top of that. George has been very honest about this over the years. Enlightened Magic, the, the documentary on Disney Plus, they show you much more of that. How he how he would, he had t- he took a lot of World Wars II footage, stuff that he liked, angles, shots, uh, crops, blocks of different shots, and he just implemented them immediately. He showed uh, Enlightened Magic, they show uh, a, a Viking film of when the enemy was coming across the ice and how he, you know, lifted that for the Hoth sequence with the Adats. I mean, we are always looking on other people. So me giving you a roadmap to where we're all grabbing is no different than what's happening in film, riffs, samples, and music. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's it's the joy of 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 sharing all of these different experiences and recognizing, wow, I see where he got this and enhanced it and, you know, improved upon it. Again, as I always say with Art Adams, I mean, every every one of my artists, John Byrne was a combination of Neil Adams, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko, period. And that's what I loved in him. And then Terry Austin with his, from the future, like, how was that guy doing that line work in 1976, 1977, 1978? Stuff that still is state-of-the-art lines I still don't see. Precise, sharp, crispy, glossy lines and effects that I still don't see on today's pages. Guy's a time traveler with time traveling techniques. I'm convinced. So Jim Lee's X-Men, mind-blowing. Not, not as big of a fan of his, any of his image work, but I, 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 I recognize the greatness of that X-Men body of work, the excitement he must have had approaching it, and the excitement it gave me as the reader as I experienced it all. Like again, his Wolverine, when Wolverine started taking off his mask, he started looking more like Barry Windsor Smith's Wolverine. Uh, his women were beautiful, and, and, and in some cases, again, the storms I really identified a, there's a certain sort of upshot that Mark did that, that Jim was implementing almost from the get-go. But so it's fun. It's fun doing that. But putting the best together, 
and turning out the best work. That that that's that's the mark of of greatness, and it is the mark of that particular alpha dog. I'm going to wrap up by at least sharing with you. If I had to put you in one direction, the best work of my career is split. In my my opinion, the stuff that I favor the most. I hit on it with Youngblood too. Youngblood one, I was feeling it out. I love all my X Force work. I love my New Mutants work. I I I, I know what that 22, 23, 24 year old kid was thinking. But Youngblood two, the appearance, the first appearance of Prophet, him battling Young uh, the Youngblood team, I started to feel like I was getting my groove. Jerry Ordway, who has drawn Infinity Inc., most famously Superman, Fantastic Four, all Shazam, brilliant draftsman, and I mean just brilliant draftsman. Period can ink, can pencil, storytell, paint. He told me when I was first starting out, when I was doing Hawk and W, he said, Rob, once you get your first thousand pages underneath you, you'll see traction. I'm like a thousand pages. I think I'd only drawn like a hundred. I'm like, what? You know, but he said, look, it'll come in five at 500 pages, but thousand, the thousandth is the biggest. And I feel like around that time, that's where I was approaching my thousandth. And I found my groove. And then on Youngblood 4, I just took off. I was doing my favorite work, the character design, the storytelling, the page design, the layout, the rendering, uh, whether it was the fades, whether it was the pullouts, whether it was the Barry Windsor Smith crosshatching that we were all biting from, um, doing giant big close-ups. It carries on to Youngblood Strike File 1, 2, 3, and then comes back to Youngblood 6, Team Youngblood 9, Youngblood 6, 7, 8, and 10. That is uh, where I was, where I felt the most inspired, where I was doing the work that I identified on the page as the stuff that I would um, recognize as being the most, as how I wanted it to look uh, on the page. And I had found partners in Danny Mickey and John Sabal, to ink my figures, my background, my hair, um, help me as I would ink all the faces. Because in that work, when you look at it, I inked all the faces. I would, I would just, I was not able to. Uh, give up inking the faces. I was so personally invested in drawing the faces that I wanted to do them myself. But along the way, John Sabal and Danny Mickey would take over textures and hair. And I, and I finally found like I got the closest thing to having my own Scott Williams, Terry Austin. And so Youngblood four, Youngblood two, Youngblood four, then the, the, the team Youngblood nine is the first chapter of when I was coming back to Youngblood after taking some time off. And then that leads into a double-sized issue six, and then seven, then eight. I don't do nine. That's part of image X month. Jim Valentino did nine, but then I'm back on 10 to wrap it up. And whether it was the colors, the layout, the poses, the storytelling, the, the, the character interaction, the twists, the turns, I felt like I put it all together, and that is some of my favorite work that I would recommend to you. I would tell you to go buy my Deadpool Bad Blood graphic novel that came out in 2017 that topped the charts. Yes, a $25 book was number one. The only time Deadpool has been number one. I'm super happy when I can smile real big and tell you that. But between my Youngblood work and that Deadpool graphic novel is when everything clicked for me. I, as any artist is, as any alpha dog is, I I paused because I was thinking of Carmelo Anthony who was... uh, doing LeBron James barbershop show. And he said, look, when, when they say leave your ego at the door, Car- this is Carmelo Anthony, I'm quoting, says, uh, I'm not going to leave the ego at the door. The, my ego is what drives me. It's what, it's what shapes me. It's what pushes me. My ego at the door is what I rely on. And I would, look, we're all 
big fans of our own work. Otherwise, we wouldn't be consumed by putting it on paper and letting it dominate 10, 12, 15 hours of our days. So I would push you in that direction. If you can find it on eBay, there is a book called Baptism of Fire, Youngwood Baptism of Fire. I have never, ever reprinted it. I don't have the rights. This is what I was going to say. I can't put my favorite work in front of you any longer. I don't have the film. I don't have the um, original color files. And I currently do not have control of Youngblood. And maybe someday I will again. It's like in Top Gun when Tom Cruise turns to Ed Harris and says, maybe so, sir, but not today. That's how I feel about Youngblood. Not today. I don't have it today. Maybe tomorrow. Um, but I can't even share that work with you. But it's available in back issues. The Youngblood Baptism of Fire is a really, we, we printed that thing on the best possible stock. It is a heavy trade paperback. Not every trade paperback is made equally, but you will enjoy it if you get a hold of it, if you can get it, Youngblood, Baptism of Fire. So we got Eric Larson, Savage Dragon, Edging Out Spider-Man. We got Todd McFarlane, Spider-Man and, and Spawn 9, kind of tied, as I believe, like his very, very best work. We have Jim Valentino's uh, first four issues of Shadowhawk collected in this trade paperback, Out of the Shadows, and then his Guardians as, as his best representation. I have uh, Wills Portacio's Wet Works, hands down his most amazing work. I have Mark Silvestri's The Darkness edging out his X-Men and Cyberforce work. I have Jim Lee's Uncanny X-Men and X-Men launch uh, that sold 8 million in about the first five, six issues of that, which are the best work of his entire career. And then I would tell you that look look towards the Youngblood stuff or Deadpool Bad Blood, the 100-page graphic novel I did in 2017. That is the work of the Magnificent Seven. Uh, we we had eyes on us. We had competition. We were at, we were each one of us trying to outdo the other. When I mentioned my Youngblood strike file, I can mention it just in the way it was constructed. I wanted to do an entire issue of mostly splash pages and then double page splash pages. And the third chapter of my Youngblood strike file, number three, I pushed the envelope and everything is either a double page splash or a splash page in the course of the conflict that's going on in the book because I said, I couldn't do this at Marvel. I couldn't dictate how big I could go, but I'm dictating it now. And I was caught up in how big, how large can I make these images? How many in, you know, in order in, you know, you know, page after page after page. And, uh, that's what we were doing. That's what we were all doing. We were pursuing, uh, our work on our terms and the seven of us, I believe changed the course of a mighty, business and you guys were there and we thank you for it and you were applauding us the entire way the magnificent seven never has seven alpha dogs existed from 92 through 96 i mean almost five full years we were together rubbing elbows competing the dream team everybody trying to get their chance at a bucket a layup uh, an and one a touchdown a home run seven alphas we were we remain the magnificent seven an age I have seen it try to be duplicated. It has not been. I think in the late 90s or even immediately after when Legend got together and said, well, if, if Frank and John and and, 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 and and these guys can all stand together, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't the same. I think people said, well, we, we, we can duplicate this. We can duplicate what they did. We can duplicate the image seven and they all believe they could. And that came in the way of Legend and in the way of, wait for it, wait for it, you longtime listeners, bravura, bravura. What is bravura? Okay. There's an entire episode on what is bravura. Uh, B-R-A-V-U-R-A. Legend imprint. Bravura imprint. Later on, uh, 
what, what, what were those guys? They tried to make a, a, a loose correlation um, like towards the end of the 90s, but none of them stuck. None of them worked. They all thought that they could easily capture what we had in the bottle and they could not because the work of the Magnificent Seven has not, will not be duplicated. And that's how I feel about it. And I thank you for joining us on this ride. I went extra long today. I am going to just wind up by telling you that I am on Twitter. I am on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, on social media. You can find me on Instagram. I am at Robert. Nope. On Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. I am the full name at Robert Liefeld on Instagram. I'm just Rob Liefeld at Rob Liefeld, both Robert Liefeld and, and Rob Liefeld on Instagram have blue checks. They have blue checks next to their names so that you know that we are absolutely who we say we are. And in this case, that we would be me. I am who I claim to be. The blue check confirms that you're not talking to a scam artist or someone who got a Rob Liefeld account. It's actually me, Rob Liefeld on Instagram, Robert Liefeld on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld has a Facebook page. Go find it, go like it, go leave me a message, comment on a show. I'll find it, I'll like it, I'll hit you back. More importantly, there is a Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group, a group that I have on Facebook. You will be uh, allowed in as a mo- the moderators that will click you in for membership will be either myself or Terry Sala. That is how you know, S-A-L-A, Terry Sala or Rob Liefeld. There are other groups, Rob Liefeld, but the Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group is my group. It's the group we've had for a couple of years. It's growing. It's expanding. I'd love for you to hang out. We discuss all things comic books, relevance, anything that I've worked on, which is pretty much everything is up for grabs. So please find Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group on Facebook. Say hi. We will absolutely interact on that page, perhaps greater than we will on any other forum. Wow. That is a lot. I am on Whatnot. Whatnot is an app. Whatnot sells cl- comics collectibles. I am on twice a week with Funko Pops, with a- action figures, Hasbro toys, Dorbs. Uh, exclusive comic books, foil, you know, all manner of exclusive variants and editions that I've done that you can't get from your retailer. I sign them. I, I do all manner of, sometimes I remark them, I drawing them. I, I share with you original art. Visit me on on Rob Liefeld at Whatnot. Whatnot is an app. It is great. They, they are expanding. They, there's sports memorabilia. There's clothes. But I am in the comic book and, and toy uh, portal on whatnot. Hit me up. Find me on whatnot. I will be there waiting for you at the end of every show. We discuss how we can feed our souls because our emotional, our spiritual, our physical, and our mental health is important. And I want you guys to be able to kick back and know that at least someone is telling you, you deserve this. You deserve to have that kick-ass donut and wash it down with that badass chocolate milk and read that comic book. Watch that cool episode of The Boys or Invincible or, you know, Westworld, or House of Dragon coming up uh, on HBO, or whatever is your pleasure. Go to the movie theater, go to see IMAX, go to see it in 4DX. I did that. It's crazy. The, the, the freaking chairs are shaking. It's like a roller coaster ride. Water is spraying on you. It is insane. I did it first this year with Top Gun, and it fed my soul. It excited me. I was inspired. You guys, take time out for yourselves. That's the message. Take time out. Kick back. Read a novel, a comic book, Watch a cartoon, a movie, a show, eat some fun food, indulge yourself, have a have that double, triple stack burger, have that four stack burger uh, 
uh, two by two, four by four, whatever that Eric Larson ate on our fast food episode that I did the fast food, fast food comics episode that is like the most popular episode in the history of this podcast, where I I tell you that Eric Larson of Savage Dragon and Spider-Man, his, his jaw unhinged itself to fit that burger in his mouth. It was a, a, a crazy feat to watch you guys have fun, take a breath, enjoy things that you like, reward yourself. And most definitely swing on back around the cul-de-sac and find me because I'll be here. I'll be here waiting for you. And we will most certainly talk again real soon. 